Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Global Solution Series. My name is Justin Tarker, and I'm an off-council based in London, um, specialising in employment and data privacy law. Presenting with me today is my colleague, Bonnie. Bonnie is a shareholder based in the US, and she is also a member of the Cross-Border Practice Group and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group um, with me as well. Um, So today, we are going to talk about an area where there has been a lot of attention recently, and that's um, namely diversity issues. So as everyone will be aware, there have been um, a few tragic events in the US and elsewhere, and we've personally seen a spike in recent months and an increased focus from companies on taking action to try to improve diversity in the workplace. And often the first step of that action has been to gather information and compile data so Um, a company understands the composition of their workforce and identifies areas for improvement. And that usually translates into implementing a diversity survey. So in today's podcast, we thought it would be helpful just to highlight and discuss the main points that employers should be considering when proposing to collect diversity information. And I think a good starting point is to perhaps look initially at the position in in the U.S., and then contrast that with elsewhere. Bonnie? Thanks, Justin. So, yes, uh, in the U.S., we have looked at this type of data differently from the rest of the world. Uh, Historically, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 contains some reporting requirements having to do with race, ethnicity data, um, as as well as gender data, uh, but really the the race, ethnicity data is the very unique aspect of uh, U.S. compliance and U.S. reporting that you just don't see elsewhere. And and therefore, there's there's a a little bit more of a, a tolerance or an expectation that you're going to be asked that if you're a U.S. based employee. So therefore, Uh, Justin, you and I wrote a a paper last year about uh, metrics and the drive to quantify. And for multinational companies that, uh, especially that are headquartered in the U.S., it it gets a little bit awkward because of that, because the U.S. companies and U.S. employees are very accustomed to being asked this information and to collecting it. And when they try to transpose that uh, elsewhere, it it has some kind of uh, troubling potential consequences if they're not doing that mindfully. So really, there's there's kind of four different ways, four different categories of information or or, um, just things that employers need to think about. Uh, So number one, the definitions of race and diversity categories. In the U.S., the EEO-1 form, Equal Opportunity Employer, um, this 
has the race and ethnicity categories and U.S. employers are very accustomed to using them. U.S. employees are very accustomed to seeing them. Uh, but these categories are, are based on the U.S. population. And if you're trying to use them globally or in locations outside the U.S., um, that's going to be difficult and it's going to cause some uh, disconnects. Um, number two, really how, how the language affects the process, uh, both in terms of those categories and in terms of the language that you're using to explain why you're collecting this data and what you're doing with it, and also how to describe the data. Um, number three, the differences in employment laws. Uh, discrimination is a much bigger driver of U.S. employment law uh, than it is outside the U.S., where employees can generally sue if their employment contract was breached or if they were unfairly dismissed, regardless of whether they were discriminated against or make that allegation. And number four is data privacy. Uh, U.S. federal law does not contain broad general data protection framework, and most other countries in the world do. And that is a pretty fundamental difference. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, I, I think it's probably worth me just touching on the difference in especially in comparison to the to Europe and, and the US. Um, as you said, in the US it's kind of a there's an accepted and common way to to ask these types of questions. But in contrast, I would say there are very few countries in Europe which impose or very few, if any, countries which impose an obligation on employees on employers, sorry, to collect diversity data. And in fact, there are some countries which prohibit it to a large extent. I know um, from speaking to my colleagues in Berlin and Paris, um, that is very much less commonplace in, in those jurisdictions. Um, and the main point or potential issue is that collecting diversity data, particularly outside the US or in many jurisdictions outside of the US, carries discrimination risks um, due to the nature of the information requested. Even where that collection is legally permitted. And the main concern is that if an employer obtains diversity information from applicants or employees, and those individuals then experience an adverse employment consequence, for example, applicants are not hired or employees are not promoted, they then have the possibility of or are likely to claim that type of decision is discriminatory. Um, so one of the takeaways well, some of the takeaways we hope you take from this podcast are the common practice, particularly outside the US, is to make clear to individuals that their provision of diversity information is entirely voluntary. Um, it's also important to make clear to individuals and to actually practice this, um, that their data will not be used in any decision-making process. And also, if you can, or to the extent that you can, try to keep that information separate and confidential from any other information that might relate to those individuals and also restrict ac access to only those who absolutely need to have access to to the information. I think it's also worth just talking briefly about um, data privacy compliance and how that affects the collection of this information. Um, and Bonnie, I, I don't know if there's, you just want to talk generally about some points that apply pretty much in any jurisdiction in relation to data privacy compliance. Yes. 
So data privacy, even in countries that, like the U.S. that don't have a comprehensive framework uh, throughout the country, what I love to say about data privacy principles is that they overlap quite strongly with best practices for collecting diversity data because it's all about employee trust. The purpose of collecting this data um, really and using it for purposes of diversity, what, what happens in the U.S. is that you've collected it for purposes of compliance. That's why you collected the data generally in the first place. Now, the compliance, especially for U.S. federal contractors, may involve uh, affirmative action plans, which do uh, involve diversity-related purposes. But the extent to which there's been a demand for transparency and a real need for employer accountability on these metrics has, uh, has led this data that was collected in one era to be used for these purposes now. And data privacy principles, much like sound diversity practices, uh, they really are based around using data for what you said you were going to use it for. So what data are you trying to collect? Why do you want to collect it? And what are you going to do with it? Who's going to see it? And importantly, for personal data, is it possible to trace it back to a person? Often, uh, we think of this type of data as being anonymized and aggregated. And depending on the size of your company, it may always be anonymous. But there's a chance, depending on how granular you get, that certain race data could be traced back to a person. And in that case, we really wanna make sure that we've observed sound collection and notice principles and sometimes actual consent as well. Uh, Justin, do you wanna uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to the consent point in, in, in a minute because that's something that is, it's obviously necessary when you're collecting this type of information, but just some points that everyone should be aware of in relation to that. And I'll just add to what else you said. So particularly outside the US, an initial important step is, and prior to implementing any or collecting this type of information, um, there's a requirement, for example, in Europe under the GDPR for employers to assess what data protection risks exist, um, assess who's collecting the information, how that information is transferred, and how it will be accessed within and outside of the company. And in, in the EU um, or in, in European countries, this would be in the form of a written data protection impact assessment. That's the phrase used in the GDPR. Um, and as you noted, Bonnie, identifying the purpose of collecting information is important. And once you, that identifica identification has been made, there's a requirement in many countries for that purpose or the, that reason to be disclosed to employees or applicants at the time of collection. Now, many employers will already have a, a privacy notice, but as Bonnie was saying earlier, um, what you may have told an individual about why you were collecting their information initially or in that 
initial notice that you get, gave to them might might now be outdated or might not be covered, particularly if you're rolling out a diversity survey. So there might be a need to make that type of notification again, um, perhaps on the on the survey platform or in another document. And then coming back to the point of consent, which we which I mentioned earlier. Um, now, of course, that's needed to effectively administer any survey. However, from a data protection perspective, consent by itself is not necessarily sufficient or it isn't really sufficient grounds for the processing of employee information. Um, and that's due to, particularly under the GDPR, the accepted principle that in the context of an employer and employee relationship, employees or applicants who at least they'll at least have some concern about their job security or um, obtaining the relevant uh, job they've applied for, um, that it's generally accepted that they can't validly give consent due to the unequal relationship. So in light of that, um, employers also or typically need to also rely on an an additional, what we call an additional legitimate interest ground um, when they're collecting diversity information. And whatever ground you, you decide on, you need to, before implementing or, or rolling out any survey, you need to balance that against the privacy rights of, of the employee. So you need to look at, do we really need to do it in this way? How would this impact the individual? Um, look carefully about how, if, or is it possible to trace information back to individuals and, and so on? Um, I think it's probably before we, we conclude today, it's probably also worth talking about how um, language may affect the process and definitions of race and diversity categories may also, how that plays into in, into a diversity survey. I agree, Justin. Uh, these principles of data collection, uh, they, they are so important because As you mentioned, employees, when applying for a job or when being asked to fill out an agreement by their employers, there's something inherently coercive about that. And uh, that's something that employers really need to recognize when they are making these decisions and when they are uh, deciding how to collect data and how to reinforce uh, the purposes and disclosing the purposes so that people can make informed decisions on whether they want to disclose it or whether they want to allow it to be used for those purposes. And the way in which this shakes out is that from a U.S. perspective, often uh, employers have these U.S. race categories embedded in their HRIS. So somebody's name has a race attached to it, and that's totally normal and typical within U.S. HRIS systems, and the categories are U.S. EEO categories. That's all regulatory. Um, When you try to globalize that, you are going to run into awkwardness. Um, The U.S. categories have separate buckets for race and ethnicity. And uh, so therefore the way that they work may just not make sense. The categories they use may not make sense 
for a particular workforce in a specific country or locality. Um, and that is not to not to even mention the the fact that local language, uh, if the U.S. categories are in English, uh, the way to translate these words into other languages, into the native languages, th that doesn't necessarily add up either. And so when a global employer, their goal is to attach a person's name to a race in their HRIS, which is US-based, you're gonna run into a, a, num a series of problems with that. And one of the principles that uh, you were describing, Justin, um, is called data minimization, that really employers are obligated by the principles of data minimization um, to do that impact assessment, to assess whether they're collecting only what is necessary to achieve the purposes. And importantly, for purposes of what they need, which is maybe aggregated, anonymized data, for reporting purposes, but also just for looking at their goal setting in diversity, do they need that to be attached to someone's name in an HRIS where it could be subject to a data breach? Do they need to use um, US EEO categories that someone may not identify with? Um, one thing that's unique about US is that you really do need to capture this data, especially federal contractors, um, to the point where the EOC actually allows, recommends even visual observation for collecting race data. Uh, Justin, how is how is that received outside the US? It's not received well at all. <laughs> it's a kind of one of the biggest red flags. And it's a question that we see coming up quite a lot. Um, can we use our own observations to decide or try to guess um what gender someone might be or what race they might be it's just it's something that's more than frowned upon outside of the us in particular um and will likely lead to first of all it will likely be or a high risk that it will be in, inaccurate um and if that type of kind of action is ever discovered, it will almost certainly result in some type of complaint or a discrimination claim from the individual. So it's just, it's really not worth doing. Um, it doesn't uh, probably assist an employer too much in, particularly as the information may very well be in, inaccurate. Um, and there's a high risk of a discrimination complaint or claim if if that's the type of if an individual discover, discovers, which they, it's, it's very possible that they could, um, that that's what's been been done by the company. And what employers are finding is, so they're using U.S. race categories, right? And they're they're accustomed to being able to use visual observation to capture race. And so they're they're using the U.S. categories, which don't always work, and they're collecting the data in a way that is prohibited by data protection law and their systems might not show how they collected the data because since in the U.S. you don't have to tell anyone necessarily, you don't have to log in your HRIS how that data was collected, uh, you might not even know that you have that problem. 
Um, so that is a reason, again, to think about refreshing your consent to make sure that you have actually obtained informed consent, given the prospect of that you didn't when you collected the data um, originally. And, and one thing that's I think is very interesting and telling after GDPR came out uh, was that um, GDPR being the uh, European General Data Protection Regulation uh, was kind of the revolutionary worldwide uh, data protection uh, impact in terms of policy and in terms of the perception of people's rights to their, their own information. And um, the risk-averse approach in data collection in, in that vein is to do an opt-in. So therefore, you know, send send this uh, self-identification form. And if someone does not fill it out, then they do not get counted for self-identification. So that's an opt-in. Um, and then if you already have the data, and you're allowing these individuals to make another decision to opt in, chances are you're going to lose a lot just from attrition, just from inertia, because uh, you know, behavioral economics principles really emphasize default setting. And if the default is opt out, then your data is not going to be as good for the purposes that you need it for. So this risk-based assessment in this data collection and self-identification, you not only need to think about your data protection obligations, but you also need to think about what you're using the data for and whether the way you're collecting it is going to discourage people from disclosing it. And that can be really, really, really tricky. Um, but the US and the non-US frameworks are just fundamentally incompatible in, in some ways that, that global and multinational companies uh, need to be mindful about. Yeah, I, I agree. And just a point on, on language before we wrap up today. Um, one thing or one point that's really come out when we've been involved in assisting clients with this type of survey recently is it, the importance of getting local teams or a representative locally involved in the planning stage, particularly in terms of language to be used in the survey, how that translates locally, and on the back end, how to analyze responses to a survey. So uh, typically a survey will have provision for some for individuals to make comments and those comments may have different interpretations depending on on who's looking at it so it's very important to at the planning stage and when you're analyzing to to get local people who are fluent in the local language involved you achieve the best results or the most effective results and that you are and to help ensure that you're analyzing the information in the right way absolutely and that really circles back to the bottom line, which is this is about trust. Gaining, collecting, processing, using employee data, personal data, data considered sensitive by most data protection laws, such as race data and ethnicity data. Um, this 
cannot be done to achieve diversity purposes unless the focus is on employee trust. That means that you're not going to get instant gratification. Often, you're going to see that it takes time to build a culture where individuals feel comfortable self-identifying and they feel like they will not be retaliated against. Uh, retaliation being uh, a really, you know, a scary word under especially U.S. Juris jurisprudence. Uh, but it, it's a, I, I use it because that feeling can be very real for individuals, especially if they are the only person of their race or ethnicity within a small office. And disclosing that will invariably, on a survey, associate their identity with the results. That is a very vulnerable position to be in, and it requires some care in language. And not only the language that you use to give the survey, but the language you use to describe the survey results. There are certain principles of inclusive language that everyone needs to be mindful of. And in companies where multiple languages are spoken, there needs to be some some real humility in explaining these categories can't be perfect. You know, we, we care, we have global values as a global company. We're doing this, maybe if this is the case, this, we're doing this for the first time. Um, and we want to hear from you. We care about what you, what you think. And then if you do a survey, if you collect data, even if you're showing it, a company has to be mindful of following up and taking actions. If you're gonna do an inclusion survey and you find out that you have some shortfalls or some concerns and that data just falls into a black hole, there can be some real credibility and trust that may be lost from that. So when collecting data, be careful to you know, put in the time on the front end and the back end. I think we can wrap up on, on, on that point and hopefully the consistent theme or main takeaway everyone listening would have taken from today's podcast is that it's it's really important to understand what local requirements are, particularly outside of the US. It's important to evaluate issues pre-implementation or pre-rolling out any diversity survey. Um, and that's mainly to help avoid risk and so that you can ultimately ensure that the process is successful, you're getting buy-in from your employees, and that you more effect effectively achieve your desired outcome and, and and gain accurate information, which you can then use to analyze and um, take action going forward. So I hope everyone listening has found that useful. Please look out for further podcasts in the Global Solution series as well as our companion article on this episode of Global Solutions. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.